Hello, I'm Konstantin Papadimitriou, Chief Marketing Officer for Forevermark. Welcome to our podcast series, The Power of a Diamond, which aims to inspire our community by featuring some of the brightest minds who will share their diverse knowledge and experiences across various industries. Well, I'm here with Leveson Wood, who is a Tusk ambassador. Fantastic you've agreed to talk to me today. Always a pleasure. And I, so I'm just keen to get straight into this uh, mm-hmm. conversation with you and, and to really ask you, where does your interest in conservation stem from? I mean, I've always been fascinated by wildlife ever since I was a kid. You know, I think like a lot of youngsters inspired by people like David Attenborough and other great conservationists. Actually, when I was about 10 years old, my father took me to an art exhibition by the uh, late David Shepherd, And I remember as a 10-year-old kid being in awe of, of this amazing paintings of African elephants. But he was actually there in attendance and I, I actually got chatting to, to him. He was a real inspiration because he was sort of explaining how he'd struggled as an artist and he said he wasn't very good when he began and uh, somehow he'd forged this amazing career. Um, he was an inspiration for me as well. Yeah, no, and, and but I just thought as a ten-year-old boy, you know, wow, this guy gets to travel around Africa painting pictures of elephants. I mean, what a remarkable life! And and actually, I took a lot away from that, and I went home and I tried to draw a, an elephant myself, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> but um, but it kind of one thing led to another, and um, and actually, I kind of from that moment on took a real interest in conservation. I think I then badgered my parents so much. I said, please take, you know, I want, to see, I want to go to Africa. And I was very lucky. I think I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I went to uh, Kenya for the first time with, on a family holiday, went on safari, and it was just remarkable, magical moments. And, uh, and ever since then, um, I've been traveling to Africa a lot, uh, you know, traveled all around East Africa and Southern Africa. And then I suppose my big break was when I did the Walking the Nile expedition back in 2013. And of course, that's when we were introduced and I wanted the expedition to have a charitable angle and and I thought, well, it makes total sense to include a conservation element. And um, I think that's when we first started chatting, wasn't it? uh, Absolutely. Well, the great thing was, of course, is that the source of the Nile although it's argued over exactly which, <laughs> which is the source, uh, you know, basically comes from Uganda, and that's where we have a number of projects in Uganda. Yeah. So it made a lot of sense for you to uh, incorporate. Absolutely, and it was great to go and visit the projects on the ground. Um, yeah, I went to go and see chimps in the wild in, in Rwanda. I went to the windy, uh, impenetrable forest in Uganda and saw the gorilla programs there. And... Uh, Places like Merchant Falls, where I saw the, the rangers in action. And uh, remarkable how Tusk has really managed to strive not just to focusing on the, the negative aspects like poaching and so on, but it's how community relations can be improved, how education is a key facet in, in fighting the illegal wildlife trade and, and really empowering the local people to be a part of the, the fight. And I mean, during that expedition of walking the Nile, I think you, you really had the opportunity to see firsthand some of the challenges that communities mm. living alongside wildlife and places like Murchison National Park, you know, the, the challenges that, that exist for them, and therefore also 
I mean, apart from the extreme poverty that a mm. lot of them are living in, how easy it is for the temptation to, to slip into poaching and operating in the illegal wildlife trade. Sure. I mean, when you've got these areas where villages are buffered up against national parks or, or wilderness areas, and you, you have, like you say, extreme poverty, then, of course, there's going to be a temptation and almost inevitability about it that, that people will go and um, want to feed their families. And, and I think it's very important that the local people see the benefit of, of wildlife. And I think that's a great part of what Tusk does, is showing how um, valuable wildlife is, not just from a monetary value, but the long-term um, aspects. You know, if, if we lose the iconic species, if we lose um, elephants, rhinos, then that will have an enormously detrimental impact on, um, on the economy in the long term. So having is seen that... Is that, that, is that um, sort of really one of the sort of mm. reasons why you very kindly agreed to become one of our ambassadors to represent the, the charity? Yeah, having you know, walked through places like Merchant National Park and, and seen the amazing work that the rangers do. I mean, you know, they've got these amazing um, sort of shipping containers which get filled with, with snares and spears and traps and shocking to see. And, and I walked through and you know, I saw the remains of, of all sorts of different wildlife that have, that have been caught in these snares. And it's, it's tragic and we need to do something about it. It's a losing battle unless you get the local people on side. And, and I think some of the initiatives that, um, that Tusk has um, rolled with, like uh, you know, empowering youth leaders and making conservation champions, I think that really sets a really good example in, in the local communities, where otherwise um, the temptation is to you know, just go and be a poacher and, and see what money you can make, whether that's for bushmeat or whether that's to you know, the ivory trade uh, or wildlife trafficking, there's, there's lots of reasons that people become involved in that. But I think fundamentally it's because there is a lack of other opportunities and I think it's about creating other opportunities and uh, instilling a different mindset uh, about what wildlife really means. And Murchison Balls National Park, it's an iconic national park actually with a very long history and uh, that you know, has been uh, the beneficiary of our most recent Living with Wildlife appeal that we've been running with the UK Aid Match Scheme, mm. uh, where the government have, have very kindly doubled all of the donations that we've received under that appeal, which we've been conducting with Sender Cow. Mm. And that is very much geared to not only trying to increase the protection of wildlife within the park, but recognising how important it is to improve the livelihoods of those people living around the park as well. Absolutely. It's such a beautiful national park. It's an amazing wilderness. And actually, what's been done there since the 1970s um, is amazing in terms of regenerating wildlife. And uh, the, the elephant numbers have, have gone up. Um, and it's been, been amazing to see the, the journey. But the, faced with the modern difficulty now of the fact that villages have grown in number and size all around the edges of the park, and the human population is, of course, booming, that's going to result in inevitable human-wildlife conflict. Um, not necessarily just poaching and so on, but when an elephant you know, leaves the, the wilderness areas and goes uh, walking through people's villages, they, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for the cabbages and whatever else they're growing. And obviously that's, um, that's going to be a real challenge for the local people who 
might lose an entire year's worth of food in one night when an elephant goes through and destroys their crops. So you've got to really understand the, the causes here. And I think uh, it's, it's enabling local people to live alongside wildlife. And that's what this campaign did so brilliantly. I must ask you that when you were doing that expedition in 2013, walking the Nile, I mean, walking through places like Murchison National Park, were you not frightened at any time? I mean, did, did you have a sort of guard of honour from, from the rangers? The, the <laughs> well, the rangers, the yeah. I mean, the, the rangers, um, we had to have a, a small contingent to come with us for, for security reasons, and rightly so. I think we had about four to start with, but uh, two of them didn't fancy the walk, actually, in the end. So they, um, they sort of, dis they, we sort of did it in stages. I mean, they were great guys, actually. They, they were very humorous. But we walked, you know, I think it took about seven or eight days to get through the park. Um, Gosh, as long as Very, that. very tricky terrain because you've got thick scrub in parts. Yeah. And so when you try and walk by the river itself, which was kind of what I was trying to do, sometimes you're faced with the unenviable choice of um, very thick scrub where it's just very difficult to pass through and also it can contain you know, buffalo and, uh, you know, other, other sort of beasts out there that you don't want to come face to face with. But when you're walking along a very narrow beach, effectively, um, it's also where, where the crocodiles are and the hippos. So you've got to be very, very careful. And there was a couple of times when I was surrounded, you know, by a hippo on the one side and, and about seven or eight crocodiles ahead. And so you're, you're often faced with these choices. And we ended up running towards the crocodiles, which is slightly, uh, you know, counterintuitive. But we thought we'd stand a better chance with them, the hippo. Um, but it was, a, no, it was fun, you know. That was a long expedition, nine months, six countries, lots and lots of different national parks along the way. But, but actually, when you're walking, there was a lot of long stretches where literally nothing would happen. So actually, it was quite exciting to be in a national park and having that extra edge, you, you, you really feel alive. Not that I've got a death wish or anything, but um, you have to constantly be alert. And that's why I, I you know, totally take my hat off to the rangers who live and camp and spend all their time inside a national park area where they, they have to be really, really vigilant, not just against wildlife, of course, but poachers. So when you undertake these trips, expeditions, mm. and walking the Nile was the first one you did, uh, and then you went on to do the Himalayas and uh, Central America, mm -hmm. and then Arabia. Yep. They're not for the faint-hearted, are they, these trips? Mm -hmm. and, and presumably you're calculating the risk all the time. Of you course, know. yeah. As you say, you don't have a death wish. So, Well, for me, this is, you know, these journeys, these expeditions are all about hopefully showing people a bit of the ground, what I like to call the ground truth. and. Uh, maybe smashing a few myths along the way and, and challenging people's perceptions and stereotypes about regions and hopefully in doing so enabling people to take a slightly different view than we often get fed in mainstream media which tends to focus on the bad news and, and what I'd like to do is bring out some of the human stories in places that often get a very bad press. Hopefully that you know, is, is a worthy contribution and if, if you, know, you can go along and, and tell the stories of the people that you meet along the way, then it gives people a voice that otherwise probably wouldn't get an opportunity to, to tell their side of the story. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, in terms of Africa, I mean, one of the big challenges that we are facing as conservationists is 
really the loss of habitat. And there's mm. been so much focus, and rightly so, on the illegal wildlife trade mm. and poaching for ivory or rhino horn and, uh, and now, sadly, even lion parts. Mm. But actually, perhaps the biggest threat coming down the track is loss of habitat and, and our own human footprint. Yeah. Did you see, uh, have you seen quite a lot of evidence of that? I mean, I oh, yeah, hugely. I mean, having, over the last 20 years of going to Africa, it's, um, it's very noticeable. The, the, the growth um, that is inevitable, I suppose, from um, communities that, you know, the average birth rate can still be five or six children per, um, you know, per couple. And, uh, and that has the inevitable knock-on effect that there are a lot of mouths to feed, which means villages get bigger, the arable land needs to be expanded, people often chop down forests, they encroach upon wilderness areas. And I saw that myself walking through Uganda, the amount of forest that's being burnt down just for charcoal so that people can cook a meal yeah. is very, very alarming. And that, you know, I, I walked through these enormous areas of just absolute devastation, it looked like apocalyptic of just burnt charred remains and the, you know, I ended up rescuing a monkey on, on that journey, actually, because, um, the, you know, the, the, it was just, it was awful. And uh, that was all because, you know, the, the people need, they need firewood, they need charcoal. And, uh, and that's sad because that destruction continues at a devastating rate. And it's, there's no easy answers because, you know, if, if, we, if we're talking about human population growth, then people will often counter it with, well, what right do we in the West have to say? To Africans to stop having children because we have, we've had our industrial revolution. We've chopped down our forests a long time ago, and we killed all our elephants millennia ago. So it's it's a tough one. But if we do want to have any meaningful impact, then there has to be a real strive towards education. And uh, my findings, having just written a book about elephants, are that there has to be some sacrifices made, and 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 what that means is really striving to protect wilderness areas. And if that means delineating areas where, for the creation of mega parks, um, then, then so be it. And, and that might mean some communities have to move. And, and tough decisions are gonna have to be made by, by some people uh, on a local level. And you've just, you've just touched on your latest book and, and the expedition you did last year, which is... Um, yeah, uh, walking with Elephants. Walking with Elephants. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, summer last year I walked across Botswana, the idea being uh, to coincide with the elephant migration towards the Okavango Delta. And it was a, an amazing experience being effectively embedded with, with a herd of elephants and walking alongside them and getting to know, kind of, yeah, more well, getting to know them, I suppose. You know, did they to get understand. to know you? I mean, well, did they, you they get did. a sense that they... <laughs> Was, I had this amazing local guide, Carne, who was a bushman, and just his intuition and his relationship with nature was something else. I mean, he, he could just tell what was going on all around him just by, I mean, he'd lived and breathed it. You know, he grew up in the bush as a nomad, and uh, so I was, very, I was in very safe hands. But yeah, I mean, I got a lot closer than I ever thought was possible. As long as you're, you, know, you keep the wind in the right direction, then you're generally yes. okay. But yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience to, to be so close to probably the most iconic species in Africa and, uh, and really get to know them and, and understand their behavior and social structure and a bit about their psychology and how they think and 
operate as family units and um, remarkable animals. And that for me was, was a real privilege to, to spend so much time in, in a place where there is still wilderness left. The, the Okavango Delta is still an amazing um, place to, to visit and, uh, and to see, uh, you know, Botswana is home to um, almost a third of all wild African elephants um, because it has been such a, a beacon of conservation and, and had a, an ability to protect those, those natural habitats. So, great journey, uh, that's about 600 kilometres I think, and it inspired me also to want to write a book about elephants as well, not just about that journey, so I've written a book called The Last Giants. The subtitle is The Rise and Fall of the African Elephant, and I know it's a slightly sad sounding title, but the, the fact remains that, you know, in, in my lifetime, you know, the elephant numbers have pretty much halved, you know, from Absolutely. a million to 400, was it now, 20,000? Well, maybe less. Maybe even less. Yeah. Mean, it, it depends where you're taking the, the forest elephants. Forest elephant. yeah. The savannah elephant's about 350,000. Yeah. Um, and you're yeah. right that, that, you know, Botswana is home to the... 120,000, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, something needs to be done. And, 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 you know, I was trying to write about the, the key, my key learnings, and I go all the way back to, to the early extinctions, you know, and, and the human impact going back to prehistoric times, all the way through to the modern issues about surrounding poaching and trophy hunting, and, and ultimately what we talked about before, the, 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 the crux of the matter is um, habitat loss. Absolutely, and, and I think that we are, uh, we're in interesting times, that, that climate change, the environment, mm. conservation, there's probably a, a far greater awareness and heightened awareness uh, of those issues and I think what uh, we are desperate to see um, and hopefully it will happen this year with the uh, Convention on Biodiversity mm. happening uh, in September and then later here in the UK the, um, the Conference on Climate Change that we need to start to instead of seeing these, these issues in silos that we need to mm. start to look about how they are interlinked and you talk about elephants there are certain plants and trees that only get their seeds only get germinated after they've passed through the elephant's Absolutely, gut, yeah. and they are as an, an incredibly important part and engineers of our ecosystems. And if if we have functioning ecosystems, mm. that in itself uh, serves a fantastic um, service to. Um, being a carbon sink, so we of need course, to start yeah, thinking keystone about species. Aren't absolutely, they? and uh, so I think that uh, you know, hopefully, we will we will see uh, this awareness just continue to. Yeah, to I think the, the the idea of rewilding really fascinates me, and, and the, you know, we we've seen these great uh, initiatives in places like the Yellowstone Park in in North America, where by a simple act of reintroducing a handful of wolves, which then curtails the deer numbers, which then has not going to impact on the grass and the soil and everything else. It can literally re-divert a river, you know, and those knock-on effects, you know, are even more magnified in Africa. If you lose the elephants, then it has a huge impact on the environment. Um, so whilst the same could be said, you know, where there is too many elephants in, in certain places like Botswana do complain because they say, well, we've got too many. Um, and that's because they're concentrated and therefore have a greater impact than they probably should on, on one area. So what we need to focus on, I think, is, is having the breathing room and the space available 
um, for nature to take its course. And, and, and elephants are, are known to be incredibly intelligent creatures. Mm. And you know, one of the reasons that Botswana has got such a large population, apart from the fact that it's been very successful in its conservation uh, programs, is that the elephants from surrounding countries yeah, which have, seem to have that have been hammered yeah. by poaching have sort of migrated into the safe space of, mm. of Botswana. It's, so I heard, a, I mean, it's an anecdotal story, but um, I can't verify whether it's true, but um, in South Sudan, where there was a, a huge elephant population until the Civil War, the elephants all fled south into places like Uganda. Um, but then just a week after the um, Civil War ended, apparently the elephants just came back. And isn't that amazing? We don't understand quite how they do it, but... Um, Elephants can communicate over vast distances yes, using can. their grumbles and um, sensory receptors in their feet, and, and you know sometimes they've said that they can communicate up to you know twenty miles apart, and, and that's isn't that amazing? They could literally tell each other from these vast distances and pass on messages about things like dangers and poachers. So when you think of it like that, we've got, really got to take into consideration a very very intelligent species that that ultimately relies on us for its protection. And, uh, I mean, outside Africa, you know, you've, you've done the Him Himalayas, Arabia, Central America. Do you come away with seeing similar challenges in terms of conservation, the environment, mm. in, in some of those places? I think ultimately it's the same issue everywhere you go, is, is the human impact. And uh, when I was born, there were 4.5 billion people. Now there's 7.7. .7 and whatever other issues are at play, that is ultimately the everything surrounding climate change. Climate change isn't in itself uh, a cause, it's an effect of, of people, isn't it? Um, likewise with too much plastic in the oceans, likewise with habitat loss and poaching, it's all because there are a lot more humans than there used to be and the, the earth isn't getting any bigger. Um, that's not to say that the growth in itself is the issue, it's, it's how it's sustainable. If we're if we can, it, it's about consumption, it's about whether or not the resources that we have are being properly managed, properly distributed, and, uh, and sadly, if you look at the statistics around the consumption levels, you know, obviously a country like the US or countries in Western Europe have a far greater carbon footprint because of all of our supply chains and um, the kind of things that we eat. So it kind of does balance out, even though we only have two children, but then... The, the massive growth rates are in places like Africa. Africa's population is set to double. It's yeah. going to go up to 2.4 billion. Well, this is it. And, and if you look, I mean, the UN has predicted that the, the global population growth will not plateau until it reaches about 11 billion. So we're at 7.7. There's still a big leap to go before um, we get to a point where education, poverty, wealth distribution, all those things have become sort of regulated across the world to the point where people only feel the need to have two children because you know people have more children because they need the the labor they need uh, that sense of security and that they're not going to have two of them die in in, in infancy and and as medical you know medical advancements and technology improves you know people are living longer children aren't dying as uh, as much as they used to thankfully but until the, the culture catches up with that, um, then it means that we've still got a 
bear in mind that in the next 80 years, we've still got to, we've got to add on an extra three or four billion people onto the planet. Um, does that mean that elephants and other species are doomed? Well, I hope not, but we've got to really act now if we want to save them. I, I, you know, I've always said that to be a conservationist, you've got to be an optimist. But I do, you know, I'm fortunate enough to go and see a lot of the projects that Tusk funds across the African continent, and I see some amazing work and, and some real successes and achievement, mm. and, and uh, some of which we try and highlight through the Tusk Conservation Awards, which yep. I know you've been to. Do you, do you still feel a, a sense of optimism? Do you think that we can turn things around? Well, if you look at the, the facts and figures, then it's hard to be optimistic, frankly. But it's only when, like you say, you go on the ground and you actually speak to people who are working really hard. And, I, you know, I found it fascinating in Botswana because a lot of the men were complaining about the elephants coming through the villages and trampling on the crops and eating their annual... Um, you know, quota that they've been allocated and, and so on. It's, it's very hard to, to, to not have empathy when they're like, we need to go and kill the elephants. And you're like, well, you know, if I was a local... I mean, Corne was like, well, you know, if, if you think, um, you know, we should save all the elephants, how about you have, have them bring them back to England and let them loose in Hyde Park? I mean, how would you feel? And it's a fair point. But actually, I met a lot of women who, conversely, they didn't... Most of the women I chatted to had the opposite... Um, Opinion. They sort of saw the, the benefit of the elephants in terms of tourism potential. And um, I actually met one remarkable lady. Who was a, she was a basket fisher, um, you know, fishing in, in the swamps um, with, with this uh, remarkable traditional uh, basket. And uh, she was telling me how her father had been tragically killed by an elephant. And I said, well, how do you feel about it? She was like, well, you know, and she said it herself. She said, we're in there space this is where this is the elephant's home we're just visitors um so you know people do there is a there, there is a respect there um but it's it, i think ultimately it comes down to to education particular and female empowerment and, and letting those voices um flourish absolutely i mean a lot of what tusk is doing is mm. is very much um linked to to those communities and seeing the women as a really yeah. a vital part of, of changing the mindsets sure. of... Uh, and also, I think if you, if, you can, if you can engender optimism and hope um, and through education, getting jobs, if a girl, instead of leaving school at 12 and getting married and pregnant at 14 or 15, um, if a girl is allowed to stay in school for longer with the chance of, and the opportunity of getting a job, perhaps she won't get married until she's 24 or 25 and, and by default, instead of having five or ten children, she'll only have three, then that's a kind of a step in the right direction, I think. Absolutely. On all your various expeditions, and particularly those ones in Africa, mm. have you found the communities that you've you know, uh, come across being very welcoming and, and, mm. and mm. supportive of your... I mean, do they think you're mad? <laughs> well, when they get past the first question of where did you leave your car and has it broken down, you, then people are incredibly welcoming and I've been welcomed in by communities all across Africa and it's, it's actually amazing that the, um, that sense of hospitality and generosity in places where materialistically they don't have very much to, to give but they'll, 
they'll very happily, you know, slaughter the last chicken for you or whatever it might be. And so it's very humbling to go and visit people um, along the way. And, and for me, it's, uh, it's really important, as I said, to, to tell their stories um, because there's some fascinating, fascinating stories. I mean, it, sometimes when I walk the Nile, for instance, you know, I was following this, this great river that is the lifeblood of Africa. When I said I was walking the length, you know, oh, how long will that take? A week? You know, there, there was no real comprehension of like quite where it came from or goes to in places like South Sudan or rural Uganda. And actually, when when you sort of put it into context, you say, and you rather than say, okay, I'm walking to Egypt, which means nothing to most people, you say you're walking to Kampala, which is like 200 miles away. It, it blew people's minds that like, you can't walk to to Kampala. Why don't you just take a car? You know, it was really good fun because often people would just out of curiosity say, "Well, can I join you today?" I was going to say, did "Walk you, with did, you." Did you have people come? Absolutely, walk with you? yeah. So local people, like you know, some of them wanted uh, to be a porter and help me with my bags, but a lot of a lot of people just said, "Well, I'd, I've got nothing to do today. Can I come and walk with you?" And it's great to have these conversations um, along the way, and um, it was really good fun. Are there, I presume, you, I mean, you've obviously met some amazing characters. I mean, are there some really uh, key characters mm. that, that, you know, stand out for you? Well, my guide for the first half of the Nile, a guy called Boston Ndoli from uh, Congo originally, but he was living in, uh, in Uganda as a refugee. Um, he came with me for about five and a half months. How did you find him originally? I'd been to some you know, parts of East Africa before and, and you kind of create a network, as you know, and I just asked around, who's like, I need somebody to walk with me for potentially, uh, does anyone have any recommendations? And all roads pointed to Boston for, for whatever reason. They said, listen, he's, he's the only guy that's going to that's gonna want to walk. And, and he did, he, he was up for it. He liked an adventure and uh, he was just a real character, a very funny man. And, uh, and actually that's the, the key attribute in... Uh, in a companion on this kind of expedition, you need somebody who can, who's tough, who can look after themselves, who's physically capable, who's not going to complain, <laughs> and and ultimately, more than anything, I think, is is funny because you've got to keep each other's spirits up because that's the only thing that gets you through. And uh, and he ticks all those boxes. And presumably, you're still in touch with him. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're in touch all the time. And uh, I went to visit him. He now actually he lives in um, in Holland. Um, so yeah. And to go, and to go to Amsterdam and see him. And as, uh, as you say, a sense of humour is absolutely crucial. But presumably, there are also sort of long periods of silence. I mean, do you, do you, were there times where you actually don't want to walk with each other and, and you want to well, You know what? We, we never fell out once, which was great, actually. Um, I think it was both because we were both happy in each other's, in our own, comp- in, in our own company to, to start with. And actually, there were, like you say, long periods of silence, and that's quite nice. But. Um, but we now it's gone. It was really, really good. Whether I mean on that walking the Nile, um, particularly when you sort of headed up into northern Uganda and, and then into Sudan mm. um, and 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 further north, were there some moments? I'm just thinking particularly around Sudan, I suppose, where it was potentially really quite dangerous. You know, given well, the rebel activity. Yeah, I mean, when area. South Sudan, uh, we when did I get there? It was. March 2014, so the civil war had, um, yeah, things really kicked off in I think December 2013. So I was going against a flow of, uh, you know, displaced people, refugees, trying to flee the violence. So it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. And, and going to uh, towns like Bor, 
on the Nile, which had been literally raised to the ground by the fighting. So uh, tragic stuff happening there, uh, which sadly hasn't really um, dissipated even now. And as you travelled north uh, into those areas, mm. uh, I, I'm, I haven't been to that part of the world, but, but I'm rather assuming that the wildlife just gets less and less and less as you, as you head north? Well, in South Sudan, actually, I mean, there used to be an abundance of wildlife. I think yeah. even now it's still got the, the world's biggest... I mean, I don't, how many wild, wild, yeah, it's the cob migration, yeah. the white-eared cob, and, uh, you know, there is a vast tract of land between the Nile and Ethiopia, which is just, is wilderness. But of course, when you have a civil war and the, you know, these armies are forced out into the bush, they can only survive on, on what they can kill. And, and sadly, you know, I was walking along, we had um, soldiers attached to us that, that were basically our guards. And whenever they saw an antelope, they'd just get their AK-47 and shoot it. And they just, that was just what they did, you know, and that's how they got their food. Yeah, and that, you know, that's what happened in Murchison Falls National Park in the 70s and 80s when you had the LRA uh, let loose and that's what def decimated the population numbers there and uh, you see it in you know, a place like the Congo as well. Um, so sadly, you know, until you know, violence stops, until these wars can be ended and, and until poverty ceases, then that's fundamentally one of the biggest challenges facing, facing wildlife. How, um, you know, given your experiences not only across Africa but you know, all the other continents pretty well, how, how important do you think it is for the commercial sector, for corporate brands to play a role in, in, in this space in supporting mm. charities like Tusk? Well, I think there's a huge responsibility for anyone that operates a business um, that relies on the land in, in Africa and, and, um, and especially organisations or companies that um, you know, are, are in nature with Forevermark, for example, but I know they do uh, a great job of um, actually protecting space by having the, these buffer areas, um, which really encourages um, biodiversity and, and protected areas where wildlife can flourish. And I think the, you know, there's, there is an increasing awareness these days of that responsibility and how people can have a positive impact through their work and, um, and hopefully that will grow and, uh, and, and that information can be, can be disseminated. I think there's a, there's a real interest in, in uh, anything to do with conservation because I think we've reached a, a critical juncture whereby we know that if we don't act now then we're going to lose it. Leverson Wood, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, John. Well, thank you for listening to The Power of a Diamond. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to discover more about Forevermark's commitment to protecting nature's beauty, head over to our website, forevermark.com.